the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you for tuning in to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's guest, we do want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Please uh, consider throwing us a buck a month to help support the show. But we're very excited to bring back the investigation of anti-Oedipus. This will be a seminar two, where we'll be taking a look at chapter two of anti-Oedipus and specifically the first two sections, those sections being the imperialism of Oedipus and the three texts of Freud. And we have invited a guest to join us as for part of that conversation. And our guest today is, is Damien, a good friend of Taylor and I's. So welcome yeah. to uh, welcome to the happy hour. Yeah, Damien, you, oh, sorry. Go. No, I'm just saying it's great to be here. I suggested to Coop we started today with the footnote. On... Was this the footnote that you were referring to? Yes. I thought yeah, so. Yeah, the, the footnote, which I find really interesting. Now, obviously, this isn't going to cover everything, but I think that it's really cool. It's on page 56 of Anti-Oedipus. I'm not familiar with the author, Jean-Jacques Abraham, but uh, we don't even have to read the whole thing, but the... The excerpt they have in the footnote is basically a, a patient is kind of accosting and mocking the doctor and saying that the doctor basically uses analysis to pawn off his own daddy issues onto the <laughs> patients. And then it's basically implied that the patient brings out a recording device, right? A tape recorder and turns it on. And the doctor says, I'm, I'm phoning the police to have you thrown out, right? And so for Deleuze and Guattari, right, they, they say that this introduction of a desiring machine, right, the desiring machine in person, as they call it, is, uh, violates one of the kind of unwritten laws that Freud even theoretically discusses, which is about excluding third parties, right? That it's, it's, it's meant mm -hmm. to be, you know, you can call it today doctor-patient confidentiality or whatever, but... You know, there is something interesting there. And the, the patient before he's getting thrown out is like, yeah, call, call the police, call daddy to come, to come <laughs> uh, you know, to come save you from, from us finding out what's really going on, as he says. I didn't know if you guys had a, had a thought on this footnote or had, had looked at it. Any reactions? I mean, I think it's quite amusing and funny and like exactly, I, I mean, <laughs> like this is the perfect reply or response to this kind of thing. Right. Because that's the, yeah, like the symbolic order, the police, et cetera. Right. Like, come rescue me, daddy. We kind of see the Oedipal system try subverting itself almost or kind of a dual Oedipal systems against each other. What do you mean by that? Go on. 
within the patient kind of having the Oedipal system of the um, state going against the Oedipal systems projected by the psychoanalyst. Right, yeah. Turning turn the tables a little bit. Yeah, so Freud is daddy or or Lacan really maybe even in, even more dramatically as dad. It's interesting to think that Freud, I mean, at, at least at a certain point in his practice, wouldn't he theoretically have had the technological capacity to record? I mean, maybe, maybe later in his life, I'm trying to think, right? Because the bulk of his analysis is 1900 to, you know, the end of his life is like 1940, right? Uh, or so, 1939. So I'm wondering, like, you know, because for, for him, he talks very strongly about not taking notes, right? You and I Yeah, how the fuck did he remember the details of the interact. I don't know how he would have done that. I guess he just has a, had a better, better memory than I do. Well, it's the question would be, you know, he talks about it as like evenly suspending your attention to what the, the, the patient is saying. Right. And I wonder about, we have to wonder about Freud's own theories of memory and what he selectively chooses to remember and even chooses to share and in, in his construction of like case studies with the Wolfman that how many hours, how many hundreds of hours that, that he spent with them. So yeah, question of repetition, who knows, but, right. um, but yeah, this, this, he didn't take notes. And so it's interesting to think about the patient maybe trying to reestablish a certain type of autonomy, a certain type of power uh, in the dynamic by introducing a tape recorder. The tape recorder as a object of, power from the um, one being analyzed against the analyst. Yes. Yeah, the um, kind of taking the almost hegemonic empowerment of the psychoanalyst and reversing it. Yeah. Taylor, am I remembering correctly? Didn't the Wolfman refer to a Dr. X as well? I wasn't yeah, sure. Like, he, I was kind of wondering if there that was some of the re- relevance of this Dr. X here as well or not. No, I, no, I, I think tell, this... But- I think this is just the standard practice that you see, especially in like older novels and, and gotcha. such. Just to kind of anonymize. The- it, yeah, it's just an anonymity. Gotcha. I think that, that that may have been the same thing with, with the Dr. X mentioned in the uh, Wolfman case. I think because there was some weird uh, transference and things, you know, I mean, it's it's the the people's names and identities would change to protect the innocent, blah, 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 <laughs> that, that kind of stuff. Although, you know, it's... Because it doesn't matter. It's better that this doctor doesn't have a name, right? Because the the anonymity generalizes it for the. It's not this one personal. It's not this one singular doctor. This one singular analyst who is who has these fears of of being recorded, right? And one of the that's interesting because that's one of the the obsessional fears of um of psychotics this uh, notion that one is being persecuted, that one is being observed. And so, so putting, the, putting pressure on the analyst there is, um, is fascinating. And the fact that he wants to, instead of just ending the analysis, why is it that his first instinct is to, is to call the police? As though, I mean, is, that, is he breaking any law outside of the, the agreed upon conventions of the, the session, right? It's, it's mad. It's the breaking of the of social normality, right? In the clinician's office, yeah. Now, one of the um, the page before this, they have this, and I, I had to do a lot of research, but it, it's fascinating. But when they say uh, psychoanalysis is like the Russian Revolution, we don't know. Oh yes, I really, at. yeah. 
yeah, it's uh, we have to keep going further and further back to the Americans, to the first international, to the secret committee, to the first ruptures, which signify renunciations by Freud as much as betrayals by those who break with him. To Freud himself from the moment of the quote unquote discovery of Oedipus, Oedipus is the idealist turning point. And I could go on, but I mean, like, Damon, you, you could probably say a lot about the reference to the Russian uh, Revolution and, and I'll, I'll let you both respond how, how you wish. I just some of those things are interesting, like because the Americans is really who uh, take in Anna Freud and it becomes this whole strengthening of the ego, this kind of strong ego defense mechanisms research. And then the first international I looked up, Freud gave his uh, his Ratman case at the first international yeah, and they loved it. They loved it so much that it went for four hours. So, I mean, and, and the first international is is when we start to see psychoanalysis taking on a bigger role outside of just Austria. And then the, the secret committee is fascinating. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it is each of the, I think there were seven, each of the members were given a golden ring. There is a whole like weird Tolkien <laughs> thing that you could make a joke about, but it was like, I don't think Jung was was a part of it, but uh, I, no, I, I thought Jung was a part of it, but he got he got kicked out when he broke from Freud, if I remember correctly. Somebody got kicked out, and I don't remember. I think it was like Otto Rank, Carl uh, Abraham. Yeah, I know maybe, Rank. Maybe Frenzy. Frenzy. I don't know about Frenzy though. I know Rank and Jung got kicked out. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think Rank's the one that got kicked out. I don't know if Jung was a part of it though. Look at the inner circle. So Abraham, Frenzy, Rank. Rock, oh, he isn't there. I Jones, thought he was there. Paddington and Socks. Yeah, you would think so, right? But so uh, um, one of them, I think Ronk was kicked out, if I remember. Or yeah. one, of them, one of them was kicked out and I think replaced by uh, someone else. But they were all given these, these like rings, right? So uh, I thought that that was fascinating, right? The the seven rings, what, the, the elves had seven rings, maybe? Or no, the elves had three. Did the humans have seven? Who cares? You said you really like this this passage, Damien. Oh, yeah, I really did in that kind of the untraceable idea of the paradigm shift mm-hmm. of psychoanalysis as well as the Russian Revolution, that to find the trace that went wrong, to find what went wrong, that what would lead to its destruction, isn't the mechanizing internal contradiction that we find in Marx and general Marxist philosophy, but it's where we have to go farther and farther back to look at the source to find its own destruction or its own wrongness or whoever, however you would like to state it. Right. I don't know. I was thinking like desiring production in general would be a good place to, to start off in terms of, uh, cause that's kind of like what the, what the main issue is, is Oedipus and how it relates to desiring production castration as well which I think we can, we can kind of move there because castration, because I guess the castration goes to Oedipus as well, right? Like the certain, that's a whole part of the, of the complexes involved. Yeah. As far as castration is concerned. I think it's interesting how Oedipus is found in Duvnitari here because they're obviously not just leaving it to the, only the psychoanalyst kind of branch, only what the psychoanalysts speaks of. They're also obviously pertaining to a cultural string, if you will, in society, I guess. And so I believe Judith Butler said some stuff about Oedipus being a part of the kind of patriarchal kind of overriding 
scheme. But I, I feel that in the losing Atari, that Oedipus is more of the foundation of not the patriarchy, not historically, but psychologically. That's interesting. Yeah, in, in, uh, in The Ego and the Id, Freud talks about how Oedipus and how does he frame it? It's basically for him, it becomes a, uh, a phylogenetic inheritance, right? Really more appropriately, the superego is like a, a, a historical phylogenetic inheritance. And I'm not, this is where I find Freud to be on shaky ground whenever he introduces uh, the phylogenetic argument. That's kind of where I feel some of the critique that Deleuze and Guattari go into with Freud really apply, like this kind of notion that Oedipus is the mythological structure and scaffolding of all the, uh, is the interpretive grid of unconscious forces and phenomena. And, um, and I think that, that yeah. they, they're very clear here in, in, uh, in, in these two little sections about that. Yeah, that Oedipus is projected onto the realm of myth by the psychoanalysts and so on. Yeah, I definitely agree there. And I think it's an interesting kind of start to a critique of Jungian psychology that I don't remember on my first read of Anti-Oedipus. It's interesting they pit, or they say that, that Freud is an agreement. They find with, Freud and yeah. Jung in the same, same sense. They critique yeah. both. Yeah, yeah. Freud and Jung both apply this mythological reading of the unconscious, whereas, because for Freud, though, it is this staunch atheism. For Jung, it is, you know, re, uh, what, what do they say, kind of reaffirming divine essence or something like that. And uh, Yeah, they said something along, it's as important to Freud to be an atheist with regards to myth as it is important to Jung to be religious in regards to myth and how they're connected in there as being both an atheist and religious, but still wrong in their coming to myth with Oedipus. You have a point here, Coop. Did you want to talk about this notion that desiring production for Deleuze and Guattari is not symbolic imaginary, but directly real? You have something here. Did you want to discuss that? Sure. Yeah. I think it'd be maybe helpful to kind of just explore the whole concept of desiring production and kind of what desiring production is responding to as a concept. Because I think, and this is just kind of my shitty reading, is perhaps that for Lacan, desire being synonymous with lack, sort of this ontological lack, or this yes. ontological place where the origin of desire is located, maybe. Um, like this kind of starting point for desire is this is this gap in the subject. And... Mm -hmm. To oppose that to desiring production, which I think in my understanding is maybe like a more, it's not an, it's not to deal necessarily with an ontological, like, or maybe even ontological is a bad way to describe it. But I think maybe for Lacan, for example, for example, lack is an a priori condition mm. for, for being or becoming. And yeah, this is for Guattari and, and Deleuze, it's more of an imminent sort of. What is the quote? It belonging on the tension of the body without organs right yeah yeah they say in the the first section where they talk about is it merely a matter of edipalizing even the schizo you know Coop, you and i were talking a little bit about how what they see in schizophrenia productively and positively is the resistance not, to oedipus 
right is this is this resistant to being edipalized this yeah. indifference to it in a certain way mm-hmm. they also talk about i guess the libido and viscosity as well oh, like yeah. is that part of it is that is it that the, oh, yeah. the schizophrenic's libido is too viscous for and yeah i think that is right i think maybe in our discussions of not only libido oh, wasn't economy, it about general but, libido then or was it the schizophrenic specific libido I think specifically their libido is tends to be too viscous to be for the edipalization to take hold. Well, well, it's, it's this interesting thing where, because they, they, they bring up Andre green, who's a, who's a, who's written so many books and I haven't really looked at enough of them, but what I find interesting is distinguishing the overly, the overly, okay. Cause they, they have the, the overly sticky transference of the hysteric, where um, you know everything is uh, is sort of that's the t- that's the, the first type of viscosity, right? It's it's too sludgy, right? And and everything sticks. Whereas the obsessional, it's too runny, right? Nothing sticks. And the good type is the one that's able to chain signifiers, etc., right? And I think for them with the schizo, they 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 think of they're already thinking about the schizo in terms of nomadicity, right? And the nomadic, where they, they say we knew the schizo was not edipalizable because he is beyond territoriality because he is carrying mm-hmm. his flows right into the desert. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, that's so, that. Yeah, um, did, did you want to jump in, Damien? I'd like to kind of add on the more literary progression of the schizo within the text. And I think it's, it's very nice. It's a very nice buildup. It's first you have the schizo as not being able to be edipalized. Then you have the psychotic leaning on the schizo. And then you have the big in the light statement, oh, we are all schizophrenics, which kind of, well, not completely, but it rejects any sense of the Oedipus being ingrained within us. It is kind of this not negatory, but kind of freeing element against the Oedipus. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? We are, we are Oedipalized, we are castrated, we are all schizos, we are all perverts. But, yeah. <laughs> but not, and not by pre- preference, but wherever we have been carried by the deterritorialized flows. Coop, it's interesting for, for them about the question of too fluid, too viscous, right? It is kind of the Goldilocks question about right. like like a transference that's just right yeah and the libidinal yeah. band in terms of being like i think that sort of has a little bit of relevance in terms of that sort of membrane and that almost what is it like the dow the the yin and the yang a little bit oh that's interesting as far as and heating, heating up the, like the heating um, up the bouncing like the the movement of particles as they're heated up or right cooled gotcha. and slowed down and how that diffuses across the membrane of the bar, et cetera. But that's getting into Lyotard a bit. I meant to say the, um, the neurotic, not the psychotic, by the way. I apologize. Yeah, the, you, you said the neurotic leans on uh, the rock of schizophrenia, right? You're, yeah. you're talking about the bottom of page 67. And I, I have that page circled because of... Uh, there's this paragraph right in the middle uh, where they say, what are the most fable conditions for the cure? It is asked a flow that lets itself be plugged by Oedipus, partial objects that let themselves be subsumed of the category of a complete object, you know, and they go on uh, about these, these other things, but that, that paragraph in itself is, is a nice sum 
for chapter for for chapter two up to that point. But um, but yeah, Coop, did you, you it looks like you have a what you call a magnificent quote. Do you wanna do you wanna give us something to bounce off of? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and read the quote, and then I'll give you what I think is kind of interesting about this quote. Is it merely a matter of Oedipalization, even this, of Oedipalizing even the schizo, or is it a question of something else and even the contrary? Wouldn't it be better to schizophrenize, to schizophrenize the domain of the unconscious as well as the socio-historical domain so as to shadow the iron will of Oedipus and rediscover everywhere the force of desiring production to renew on the level of the real the tie between the analytic machine, desire, and production? For the unconscious itself is no more structural than personal. It does not symbolize any more than it imagines or represents. It engineers. It is machinic, neither imaginary nor symbolic. It is the real in itself, the impossible real and its production. Yeah, it's a phenomenal quote. The first thing is you have to set up Lacan's notion of the real as the sort of ineffable, ins- unsignified portion of, I guess, I don't know, being? Yeah, I mean, it, it, at least in terms of the real resisting all symbolization, right? Right. The impossible real, as they say. So um, I think it's very, like, it's a very bold claim to make that the real is, I mean, Am I reading correctly? Because this is, to me, this is saying that the real is kind of synonymous with the unconscious writ large, which I more think is of, super radical. I think, yeah, yeah. I also think it's more of the real as synonymous with desiring production. This is interesting to me because this gets us to a little bit of what we talked about last time with Todd McGowan, but basically his, his you know, as a Lacanian, the way that they want to talk about desiring machines, right, and desiring production as no metaphor, right, as not subsumed under metaphor metonymy play. Yeah. I think for looking right. and for this discussion of the real, uh, as Damien was saying, as, as desiring production, I think that, that there's a definite break there between the the usage of these of these terms uh, yeah. as, as as Lacanians would see it. And so it makes sense why Tom McGowan was like this, you know, this doesn't work. But that's if you stick within a Lacanian framework and you presuppose that. I mean, even in Lacan, he has his thinking of the real changes, right? If we give it the big capital R. In the early days, it's it's not necessarily so formulated, but by the 60s and 70s, he, it becomes more and more central and it becomes yeah. more associated with sort of being unsymbolizable and, and, and sort of, as, Lacan, as Laro might say, indifferent to symbolization. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I think even later, if you're following the chronology of Lacan's work, the real is really kind of where he ends up with a bigger focus. And I think that probably goes to that sort of reciprocal influence of anti-Oedipus back onto Lacan that we kind of talked about with, with McGowan last week. Okay, so I think this little passage here was definitely interesting to me to look at more the the deluso guitarian kind of clinical project but more guitarian than anything else but for the clinical project of the guitarian or schizoanalyst i'll just say of the schizoanalyst is to rediscover to show the force of desiring production within the psyche 
and to break, well, I'm just quoting it now, but to break the Oedipal structures within the client or patient. Yeah, I, I like this because where I would go is, you know, when they, they bring up Schraber again in the three texts of Freud section. And, you know, with Schraber, you can't say his delusion is merely symbolic or imaginary. Now, in his writing, he does try to uh, elicit the religious sim symbolic implications of his delusion. But his lived experience, I think, for Deleuze and Guattari, you have to, you have to insist that it's real. And what Freud yeah. constantly tries to do is to, uh, and of course, Freud didn't conduct, as they say, the analysis of Schreiber himself in person. He, he's he's kind of doing a literary reading of it, but he's constantly forcing Schreiber, uh, his lived experience, into these symbolizable uh, into oh. a structural Oedipus, not just an imaginary yeah. one, mm -hmm. right? But into the structural Oedipus that that crushes the lived experience, the desired production that Schreiber effectively experiences. Yeah, and what what's the quote from Deleuze? And he Oedipalizes Schreiber, not even leaving and not even leaving a word untouched or mm -hmm. left. Yeah, yeah, that's. I guess that's. I recently got some um, memoirs of my. Um, Nervous uh, illness. illness. Yeah. Yeah. I got it in Austin by Schreiber. Yeah. Happy it, it, it is. It is fascinating. It, it is really fascinating. And we got to read think, the Kittler essay at some point. Yeah. The Kittler essay about the machines and, and uh, yeah, I mean with, I think with, with Schreiber, they see, and I, and, and while I, I find Freud's case fascinating, it really is more about Freud than it is about Schreiber. You could say that about off the top of my head, certain books like, you know, Heidegger's uh, lectures on Nietzsche, right? It's much more about Heidegger than, than Nietzsche and stuff like that. No, I so you, see that you see that with Freud in, and, and, and as I say, like, Schreiber himself barely mentions his father. You know, in the introduction to, uh, I forget the author or the, anyway, in the introduction written by someone else, they, they bring up, and Coop, we've talked about how famous Schreiber's father was right, with his, um, his, his essays on child rearing, or his books on child rearing. And like his devices and so forth. And his devices and all this stuff. But Schreiber doesn't really mention him. And um, Schreiber himself doesn't assimilate the god or even the, the, the vision of the, the god into two with, with the father, even though that's common in, in religion. And that's where Freud will want to go with the birth of the superego and how we inherited it, blah, blah, blah. Like, he'll see that at the root of religious experiences and ideation and so but for Schreiber you know his lived experience isn't that flesh is my father God is my father and therefore persecuting me Freud sees in this ah this is this is what the psychotic does the the superego is this is this observer that's watching over us and that's that's and so persecution is really like the internalization of the father blah 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 and I just don't know if that really does justice to yeah um, definitely doesn't I thought maybe digging into this more I don't know. I just, I still am sort of a little bit not sure as far as how they're saying that desiring production is real in the in the kind of the impossible real sense that Lacan talks about. What does that mean exactly? Right. What does it mean for desire? Because I guess for for Lacan, all desire is it's not an it's not imaginary. Or is it imaginary? Because I feel like much of it is. I thought imaginary was kind of what the critique of Deleuze and Guattari, that their concept of 
desire was was imaginary. In Lacan's terms, you know, it's it's objet a, you know, cause of desire or whatever. It is, it is always this mirror play, and yeah. it's never it's never where it's supposed to be. I mean, for Lacan, he's taking up. I see a lot of this is explained with Deleuze's anti-Platonism, right? Mm-hmm. And Lacan being and Badu too saying right. this. Lacan remains faithful to this Platonic notion of lack, and for Lacan, straight away, it's always lack of object, right? That, mm-hmm. That's fundamental. Uh, the object is always lack, lacking. I, th- I, right. I think. I think here when they say impossible real and scare quotes, I think we have to interpret the scare quotes as as a little sardonic, okay, right? a, a little sarcastic. Um, gotcha. Because you know, this I, isn't I, in a Lacanian framework. Yeah. Right. Right. And and I, yeah. I think that that just you know straight away when when they say that the unconscious is a factory, it's an ensemble of machines, and it and it machines and it produces. I think that that's why they want to call it real. It's not a metaphor. And if you redu- if if you take the unconscious first and foremost as a play of either the imaginary or the the symbolic, like Freud does, mythologizing it. Mm-hmm. And really, for them, it's about this question of mediation and this question of representation as the means right, of mediation. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's where they, I think that's where they want to take up the Lacan's notion of the real and completely. Mm-hmm deterritorialize it, if you will, and unmoor it from its intrication with the symbolic and the imaginary, which again, for Lacanian, for Lacanians would be a, a primal sin, right? Yeah. For objet a, objet a functions in a sort of metonymic fashion, right? Because it's sort of the horizontal, this horizontal chain from object to object that kind of desire follows, or is this more related to the sort of orbital function of of death drive more so for freud and for lacan as you say with with the metonymy it's always a question of substitutes right right you refinding the lost object is never it's always a part of fantasy Mm -hmm. right and and so that's the structure and i think that for Deleuze and Guattari, this is why, for example, they turn to perverts. Why would perverts want to be Oedipalized, right? They have yeah. the fetish itself provides this lubricated, easy access. And to say it's symbolic or imaginary, again, doesn't necessarily do justice to the ease with which they enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and I think that that's why there is a little bit of a polemic here about the concepts being used. But I don't think that the notions of the imaginary, symbolic and real are necessarily even no, they get dropped. They get dropped out of the book. That's not. That's not the. That's not the pursuit they're they're making. Yeah. And I think that this is, on the one hand, you have Deleuze's, as I said, the anti-Platonism, but also this question of, there is a diatribe against the the Hegelianism and the the, the Platonic stuff, which we'll eventually get to. But I think with Guattari too, he's also struggling against his, kind of. I mean, who who was his father in terms of theory it was Lacan and how obsessed he was with it that that provided him the motivation to become an analyst in the first place so I think that this is part of his means of kind of exercising and you know displacing and vomiting out some of this this language that won't really function for them the language is still there though to some extent (laughs) in where we understand that difference in nature as not being of imaginary and symbolic well, or imaginary versus symbolic, but of the real machinic element, that being desiring production versus the whole consisting of both the symbolic and the imaginary. Mm. That kind of duality that we see a lot in Deleuze and Atari. Coop, you have anything else you want to ask or add? 
Well, I was just going to go back to the idea of metonymy and mm-hmm. kind of that being how object a functions. And so I was kind of a little bit confused because Guattari sort of says that the object a is where Lacan is deterritorializing the sign. And he even goes into like the anti-Oedipus papers. They have that chapter on machinic a. So I don't know if that has any relevance exactly here, but I don't know. That's kind of... The machinic a Guattari gets from Leclerc. I'm okay. trying to remember. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah, we, where comes, we brought we that talked, up a little bit, yeah. You know, obviously, they Guattari takes that and runs with it, right, and um, and in, in deterritorializes it more. But, you know, he, and he, he's also thinking of institutional objects, right? Object, you know, B, C, D. Um, he's wanting to kind of multiply them. Instead mm-hmm. of instead of anchoring it in the imaginary, right, and this, oh, I think this I think this gets us to this insistence upon I think fundamental to schizoanalysis and, and Guattari's work at Laborde this this insistence upon group fantasy, which we see in the second section. If I yeah. don't know if you have any quotes you want to look at already pulled up, but this is like pages sixty two and sixty three, especially you know this question of group fantasy. One of the things that I don't know if this jumped out at you. It's actually the end of the bottom of 61, you know, where they're talking about the child was being beaten as essay. And I'm not sure the reference they're bringing up, but they say uh, back in the village after a raid in Vietnam in the presence of their weeping sisters, the filthy Marines are beaten by the instructor on whose knees the mommy is seated and they have orgasms for having been so evil for having tortured so well. It's so bad, but also so good. I, I, I wrote what the fuck, but maybe <laughs> It could just be the fact that the Vietnam War was in full swing, right, at the time. And, and so they're they're talking about one of the things that Freud usually does. We see this in one or several wolves, for example, in The Thousand Plateaus. But one of the things he does is constantly, one of his mechanisms is constantly reducing the group character fantasy to individual fantasy. And I think that that's part of the objet a Guattari wanted to multiply it and see it as a, as a group phenomenon. Well, I think um, right after that, if I remember, you have in my notes, it says them talking about the revolutionary institution as transcribing the deaf instinct into a veritable, the veritable creativity. So I think that is kind of the relation to Vietnam and the kind of revolutionary instinct that we see a lot in Badu, but uh, less so directly in the losing guitar. Obviously, you can get there with a lot of different pathways, but you are there less directly a lot for losing guitar. But that was a nice little bit that I found after that, I believe. Yeah, that's the top of page 63. And you're right. I think that for Guattari, for his notion of transversality, it is about thinking of the death drive as not necessarily an individual phenomenon, but broadening mm-hmm. out. It, it is a, as you said, it is a veritable institutional creativity. And they have that great paraphrasing of Nietzsche where he says, churches, armies, states, which of all these dogs wants to die? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's where they want, this is where the death drive for them and for Guattari is fascinating because it functions like on the, down below, that it functions at the level of utopia or what they call revolutionary action and passion, which I thought was interesting. Any other thoughts on either this section or uh, did you want to talk a little bit about the... That reminded me a little bit going back to the Swamp Thing episode we did because in that episode, we're talking about the Floronic Man who is this sort of revolutionary, right? He's at least a quasi-revolutionary figure. And what three institutions does he first? What are his first priorities? It's, I think, school, church, police. 
were right. the three institutions that he attacks in the kind of in the small town first and disables. So I don't know. That's a little yeah. He thing disrupts, that popped in my head. He disrupts the institutional apparatuses, the ideological state apparatuses, because that's the means of reproduction. That's the means of reproducing reproduction, and thereby because the frog man is kind of a, an eco-fascist or whatever, and thinks yeah, yeah. that thinks that he is destroying civilization on behalf of of nature so it's this it's this mm. misanthropy and i think that for i think that for Deleuze and Guattari especially Guattari that type of catastrophe while enjoyable in in imagination and fantasy is that's not necessarily how you plug the revolutionary machine and the analytic machine productively together it's kind of trying to just split them even further or in a different way. I think that the, the question really is about... Symbolic, s- really. Well, yeah, but it, it's also seeing uh, the death drive, you know, as... Um, yeah. yeah, this question of it being creative, I think, is, is fascinating. And it, mm-hmm. it reminds me of the dialectic of um, group subjects and subjugated subjects, or Sartre talks about groups in fusion and serialized groups. I think that mm-hmm. this, this question of of the will to power of churches, armies, and states, right, trying to trying to perpetuate themselves at all costs, right? They talk about the the marine who, what does it matter if I die if the army is a right? Yeah, and that kind of context of Patton, yeah, which is an interesting, like that's such an astute point. I think this quote kind of goes to I think that death drive for institutions here. Because they've been noted basically that same point here that I referenced regarding Floronic Man. So I'll go ahead and read this little excerpt. In the power to experience institutions themselves as mortal, to destroy them or change them according to the articulations of desire and the social field by making the death instinct into a veritable institutional creativity. For that, it is precisely the criterion, at least the formal criterion, that distinguishes the revolutionary institution from enormous inertia, which the law communicates to institutions in an established order, as Nietzsche says, churches, armies, states which of all those dogs wants to die, which I guess that actually you read that, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's, we just paraphrased it, but that's, it's good. And they say that this is the revolutionary pole of group fantasy. I think that that's fascinating because okay. the individual fantasy is already plugged into it. But once, but when we reduce the social group aspect and hyper-focus in on the individual, which we do see in Freud's case histories, Right. We yeah. see that we see I think that there's that's where we function on the level of the imaginary in a, in a negative sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's not what the losing watcher you're in, interested in. Right. Because, you know, as we said, as they as they mentioned, all the Schraber's delusions are rife with with histories, with peoples. Right. He's, he's fascinated about this elementary language that the God, the Godhead, the, the God speaks and. At different times, it having whether it be Latin or you know different empires rising and falling, it changes the elementary language for Schraber. So he is. I mean, this is why they they say that the unconscious is populated by peoples, races, tribes, and and it's not just a little theater in the brain. So when we look at kind of schizo theory, at least recent ish schizo theory in. My two cases were generally Rezina Garistani's Cyclonopedia and the CCRU writings. We kind of find the idea of uh, time's natural order or chronology being subverted. And I think that generally, from what I've 
read in various blogs and stuff is from the idea of desiring production as a thing that bypasses chronology. And I just, I just want to add that little kind of historical-ish detail in there, or genealogical, if you will, about that. You could do a whole reading of Cyclonopedia through the notion of the nomad and the schizo in the desert and that kind of thing. There's so much you could, could do there. Yeah, I think it's interesting how an anti or anodopality is found in Deleuze and kind of the structure that I talked about earlier to the kind of building up to the statement of us all being schizophrenics and perverts. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the um, exo-odopole and the pre-odopole and that and those spaces being of where the desiring production kind of escapes the trap of odopality and that's where I got the kind of idea behind Cyclonopedia and the connection there. And, but I also find that interesting in of itself of where desiring production, obviously it is everywhere. And that's, and that's kind of the buildup and reveal of the schizophrenic claim, but it also kind of flowing out in specific places where Oedipus has not existed as a barrier, even though the barrier is more translucent than anything else. Do you have something here? Do you think maybe going into the theatricality, this critique of the theatrical model is relevant? I pulled a quote from Leotard on that, but yeah, I don't know. If- I, I mean, it flows with, with a little bit of what we've said, but we haven't fully fleshed out this uh, attack on where Freud gets Oedipus. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll go ahead and read this little bit. This is going to be an excerpt from Libidinal Economy, page three, kind of going towards this critique of Oedipus as this theatrical model. It is certainly certainly not a libidinal theater then. No density, intensities running here and there, setting up, escaping without ever being imprisoned in the volume of the stage slash auditorium. Theatricality and representation, far from having to be taken as libidinal givens, a fortiori metaphysical result from a certain labor on the labyrinthine and Mobian band, a labor which prints these particular folds and twists the effect of which is a box closed upon itself, filtering impulses and allowing only those to appear on the stage, which come from what will become the known as the exterior, satisfying the conditions of interiority. The representative chamber is an energetic dispositif. To describe it and follow its functioning, that's what needs to be done. No need to do a critique of metaphysics or of political economy, which is the same thing since critique presupposes and ceaselessly creates this very theatricality, rather be inside and forget it. That's the position of the death drive. Describe these foldings and gluings, these energetic vections that establish the theatrical cube with its six homogenous faces on the unique and heterogeneous surface. To go from the pulsion to representation, but without allowing oneself, in order to describe this implantation, the sedentarization of the influxes, without allowing oneself the suspect facility of lack, the trick facility of an empty alterity, of a zero whose silence is about to be shattered by the demand which zero whose silence is about to be shattered by the demand, which disturbs it rather. Demand already speech then and addressed already and to something, yes, to this other and by something which is therefore already able to speak, yes, whether in gestures, tears, fury, the infatuated suckling's torpor, interjections as they say, so that with this trick of the demand and the zero silence, well, it remains only to inaugurate the theater and power and set them to work, the theater of power where satisfactions will dupe the desire originating from this alleged lack itself. 
Quite the contrary, it is necessary. We will come to this later to describe the business of the cube, starting with the opened and exposed band of the libidinal body, according to the unique face without verso, the face which hides nothing. I mean, I'll just say really quickly, you see that this is taking up and running with some of the arguments we already see here that Deleuze and Guattari have put forth, that Freud turns the unconscious into a theater, into the space of representation, precisely in order to to describe the functionings um, but there's a sense in which he doesn't, you know, he, 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 he goes too far, right? Because he wants to reduce everything to representation and forget the non-representational, the non-symbolic aspect of the unconscious that they're arguing for. The machinic aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you like to take from this to kind of analyze where the Oedipal is today and to what extent it is today? Because I have some prep on that. Okay, I just, I just like to hear you all's ideas first. When we talk to McGowan, who's a pretty staunch Hegelio-Lacanian, they were not so antagonistic towards this critique of Oedipus, exactly. And mm-hmm. I think maybe yeah, um, in, the, in the more contemporary Lacanian imagination, the notion of what is it, normal psychoses is becoming a little bit more popular where there's not this reliance on a a stable name of the father per se, that is a little bit different from kind of this classical Lacanian approach. Mm -hmm. Deleuze and Atari did say the things about Lacan being the first schizoanalysist in that kind of sense. Mm -hmm. So, and that the Lacanians were kind of subverting Lacan, but Lacan himself needing to be subverted and all of that. You see in the footnote they have, I'm not sure which seminar it is. They say, it's from 1970, so that could be that could be around Encore. But they have Lacan saying, "I spoke of the paternal metaphor. I've never spoken of an Oedipus complex." While that's not true, I think <laughs> yeah. uh, because he he he, he, right. he did uh, yeah he, he, in seminar four for sure, <laughs> at least in seminar four. But yeah. you know, maybe he meant in the training of analysts. He mm-hmm. even if he did speak of it, it's obviously because Freud at the end of his life, at least, saw it as a, as a universal and as a given. And, you know, we'll see later in anti-Oedipus that they link not just Oedipus to imperialism, but to colonialism, right? And I don't want to jump forward to that necessarily, but, you know, where I would see, gosh, I mean, Oedipus today, you know, from a Lacanian standpoint, and Zizek pointed this out very well with in terms of capitalism, it is this uh, the injunction to enjoy and to uh, and to sort of whether it be our symptom or our Coca Cola or whatever you know that that's that's perhaps where it is as we become increasingly less religious maybe that's where it, its secular form starts to starts to take shape. Well, I think to defend Lacan for a second, I think his Oedipus is different historically than Freud's Oedipus. And at least there, he obviously analyzes the Oedipus complex, but in the whole story of Oedipus, I remember reading something in uh, Badu in Jack Wesleycon, Past and Present, about how Freud uses Oedipus Rex and Lacan uses a different either translation or story, I don't know which one, on Oedipus to analyze tragedy. Be particularly in um, the seminar on, on on the ethics of psychoanalysis will privilege a reading of Antigone over Oedipus Rex, right? Which mm-hmm. you know is the 
you know, if you consider Oedipus as a trilogy, instead of just privileging that first installment, then there's something interesting going on there. So Baderard says something interesting in Simulacra and Simulation, which I, I will state, do not start Badra out of this book. <laughs> it's very overrated. You know my spiel. But the book's I, still I very good. Huh? I said I second that take for sure. Right, yeah. The book's still very good, though, and it's very good as well as, an, as a companion to the losing Atari. And in discussing the Oedipal sexuality, Badrard says, this is not a quote, this is just my notes, Oedipal sexuality being resolved in terms of non-human sex, the father and mother have disappeared, not in the service of liberation, that being of desiring production, but in the service of the matrix of contemporary reality and society. So that through the kind of cybernetic institution, the Oedipal complex is kind of dissolved, but not through the liberation of desiring machines, but of the matrix of modern society. I know that sounds, uh, but yeah. Yeah, because I think his critique is, he even goes so far as to say that there is no political economy, nor even libidinal economy. And it's just this sort of kind of tying it to a, to his notion of simulation. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, don't know, I pulled the quote from, I don't know if it exactly addresses this specific thing, but I feel like I did have one. Let's see. Ah, this is a little bit different, I think, but I think maybe kind of goes to that same critique. And this is from, uh, this is from Symbolic Exchange and Death, page 505-506. To put the theory of the unconscious into question is to also put the theory of desire into question. And that here at the level of an entire civilization, it is always simply a matter of a negative phantasm of the rational order. Hence, desire becomes an integral part of our reigning prohibition its dreamt materiality becomes part of our imaginary, whether it is dialectically related to the prohibition as with Oedipus and psychoanalysis, or whether it is exalted in its brute productivity as in Deleuze and Guattari's anti-Oedipus, it remains the promise of a savage naturality, the phantasm of an objective, liberatory pulsional energy to be liberated, a force of desire inherited from the mobile field of revolutions good old labor force. As we know, the effect of force is always the effect of repression, as the effect of reality is always the effect of the imaginary. We must write the mirror of desire as we have written the mirror of production. Beautiful. That's amazing. That's really great. This is where I, you know, I I think that um, Leotard's critique of Baudrillard is, is very important to remember, you know, even if he remains close with him, Right. is there's something about Baudrillard where even with elaborating the notion of simulation, which, you know, Deleuze, Deleuze and Guattari had already elaborated the notion of simulacra contra the, the notion of the copy of the model we find in Plato, you know, even, even though he, he's famous for this, he still holds to this notion that kind of like Badu, where the truth or truth is something to be aspired to. Right, right. That it's something to hold on to, and Leotard is very wary of that. And I think that Deleuze and Guattari, as well, the notion of truth, I think for them is is still caught up too much in the play of the the space of representation, etc. And and I think that that's why it doesn't really hold conceptual value. Mm-hmm. No, no, I understand that critique. Do you think, Taylor, that maybe 
castration is a place to pick up to work towards Oedipus a bit further or? Yeah, I mean, sure. I, I would just say really quickly, and I want to see what you guys think. You know, they, I think that for, you know, for Freud, as we've talked about a little bit, the notion of castration is, is kind of, it's fundamental for what he sees as like the primal drama. Uh, specifically, he focuses on on boys, and that's one of obviously the blind spots in, in Freud, even if he will at first, you know, because they, they do critique him here on his notion of Oedipus for, you know, for boys and girls. And eventually he will, after writing the Ego of the Id, have a differentiate between how they work through Oedipus. But, you know, he likes to simplify and focus on boys. One of the things, though, that, that I think that, you know, Freud loses sight of sometimes until it becomes convenient is the notion of either what you could call it constitu- cons- constitutive or constitutional bisexuality, right? Which we see brought up in... Yeah, I mean, that's brought up in the... Schraber. That's brought up in Schraber, really, yeah. like in those three cases, Schraber, Ratman, and Wolfman. Yeah, and, and I think that Freud only brings it in when it's convenient for him. And in one, of the, one of the ways that it is convenient for him is this notion that the boy isn't just aggressive towards the father and, and, and wanting the mother and that object relation, but is also plays the part of a girl and wants the father's love and attention. They right. saw that specifically in Wolfman wanting to be punished by the father. And so like, I just think that kind of goes yeah. to the quote about the, the Marines or the army officer mm-hmm. or the army soldiers being punished by the officers or whatever. Right. Yeah, beaten by the instructor, by the by the general, or whatever you want to call it. Obviously, it's it's all it's all it's all daddy, it's all father. And uh, I would just say that with Wolfman in particular was the one that had the sadomasochistic desire to be punished by the father. If I'm cor- correct, yes. or was that Ratman? Yeah, because Ratman no, was, also had was, the weird was... Ratman fantasized about people being punished, but I don't think it was himself, right? No, Wolfman specifically. Yeah, he he even has fantasies about being punished by uh, his dorm mates, by the boys in, in his dormitory, and and then beating him specifically on the penis. Freud goes nuts there, right? Because he has certain points where he's going to literally fetishize the the penis, and he and he. This is why I think that when Freud fixates that it's that castration is is a really the logic of castration for Freud is about narcissism and it's our individual narcissism for the boy. It's losing his precious object, right? He sees his manhood in it. And for the girl, you know, for Freud, this is where, again, I think he gets a lot of stuff wrong on feminine sexuality where he, he wants to isolate their castration issue with this desire for a penis. And this is why I think Lacan will helpfully articulate that the penis as a biological phenomenon is not the same as the phallus as an imaginary one. And I think that that's a, yeah. huge, that's a huge improvement over uh, over Freud. One of the one of the, his blind spots, I would say. And then in Deleuze and Guattari, we find a better improvement with kind of approaching the feminist points against psychoanalytic ideas of the phallus and the penis. Do you want to look at that section about women's liberation? Is that what you were thinking of? It's on page sixty one. It's it's same page as they uh, as the Vietnam reference. I think I have that pulled too. Good. I think that's good to look at. And Damien, I'd, I'd let you continue. I want to say that any... even like, uh, I think that Bozier had a similar reference to. Tay Tay, what are you saying? 
Oh, I was saying if you had, if you wanted to talk about this, this point, I, I didn't mean to cut you off or I wanted to let you finish your thought. If you had something. Oh to yeah, say. yeah. Yeah. The really great quote is women's liberation movements are correct in saying we are not castrated. So you get fucked. That's <laughs> yeah. A really phenomenal quote. And I think that relates to both the um, Lacanian and Freudian kind of perspectives and how we can put feminist perspectives through that psychoanalytic case. A lot of the personal research I've done has been on more, I'm not progressive, but obviously feminist and post-structuralist ideas of the clinic and of therapy and of psychoanalytic ideas. And yeah, I think that it's just interesting to find that there and really great. I like how they say before getting in the same paragraph, before getting to the quote you just read, they say mm-hmm. we have not finished chanting the litany of the ignorances of the unconscious. It knows nothing of castration or Oedipus, just as it knows nothing of parents, gods, the, la- the law, lack. And, and, you know, I mean, Freud himself says that the unconscious doesn't, the negation in the unconscious doesn't function the same way. That the unconscious is kind of impervious to death or the notion of death, right? I can testify to this myself personally in my dreams. I will dream of my mother and my father and they'll be there in my dreams. And I have this lucid moment where I know consciously that they're dead. I literally often say to them in the dream, you're dead and there doesn't matter, I'm here right now. So the unconscious doesn't process. I mean, I think this is this fundamental, which you already see in Freud, but this fundamental assertion is I think why they insist upon lack not being found at the level of the unconscious. Just as, I mean, this is why they also call it real, because for uh, Lacan, the real doesn't, there's no lacking in the real, right? It's, it's, it's all of a piece. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true, though? Isn't there a little bit of lack in all of the RSI? Like, isn't that what McGowan was saying? Not for Lacan necessarily, right? Because gotcha. if, okay. if so something that's more like is, a Zizekian. Kind I think, of- I think if, if something is missing from, it's not, symbolically missing okay right but but in terms of the real nothing is missing uh-huh. i mean it's always in it's always in its place hmm. which is why that quote i don't know if you guys saw the quote that i had from um seminar four about the librarian living in a symbolic world because if a book's missing from its spot it's effectively um doesn't exist right well yeah it's effectively unlocatable right mm-hmm. and we you'd have to do a thorough search inch by inch Right, to find it. But this is the same kind of dialectic too. This is one of the first places where he Lacan defines the real is the famous Perloin letter, the reading of the Perloin letter. And, and you know, it's the beauty of that story is precisely that the, the letter is hiding in open style. Right. This is where Lacan is going to say that, it, that the real is, is never missing. And so I think that that's why they play with this language of RSI and, and insist upon desiring production, the unconscious being real, not mm-hmm. lacking anything. I pulled a quote from Lacan's uh, seminar four. This one might be relevant too here, maybe even directly, because it goes to this symbolic reference. I have reminded you of what presented itself as immediately given, castration, frustration, and privation, three terms whose differences it is productive to take note. Castration is essentially tied to a symbolic order qua instituted as concerning an enduring consistency from which the subject under no circumstances can be given. This is made sufficiently evident as much in our previous reflections as it is to the simple remark that from the start, castration was tied to the central position given to the Oedipus complex as the essential articulating element 
in the entire evolution of sexuality, the Oedipus complex as already fundamentally including in itself the notion of the law as absolutely ineradicable. I think mm-hmm. that the fact that castration is at the level of symbolic debt will appear sufficiently affirmed and even sufficiently demonstrated by this remark, strengthened and supported by all our previous points. Last time, I indicated to you that surely what is concerned was at stake in this symbolic debt, which is instituted by castration, is an imaginary object. It is the phallus as such. This is what Freud affirms here. In any case, and in this point, and this is the point from which I will proceed and from which we will attempt to push the dialectic of frustration a little further today. So yeah, I thought this got really nicely into castration being tied to the symbolic order, which I think yeah. we just discussed, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say, you know, his three categories, he will want to associate, as you saw here, castration to the symbolic. He'll want to associate... Now, while castration is symbolic, the object that we are deprived of, the phallus, is imaginary. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And it's the same with like frustration. I think that, you know, the object of frustration is is real. He'll give the example of the mother at the breast or the child at at the breast, right? That, you know, good mothers know, you know, just the right moment when the child needs needs the breast, but also in the process of weaning, how to introduce bit by bit more and more frustration of the object, of the lack of the object. And then privation for him is ontological, right? It's it's a it's a real category. And it's mm-hmm. not that the real is deprived, it's we are deprived of you know the real. And and so none of that really matters. I, I guess I uh, Damien, did you want to did you want to jump in on any reflections on castration or or any of this uh, this passage we just read? Um, not a whole ton. I've read a little bit of Lacan, but I definitely haven't read enough. I understand the basic points, but to but my framework is still definitely Deleuzian and how I see this, and it's hard to break from that for me. Anti Oedipus as a text was the second philosophy book I ever read, outside of middle school. Roseau. <laughs> you're you're a brave soul. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I went I, I read um capitalist realism and then Fisher referenced a book there and yeah. <laughs> so it's but, indispensable um, to your to your intellectual trajectory. <laughs> right. Yeah. Reading it again has been really a, a really enjoyable process for me, honestly. Well, I, I guess that's the interesting thing. We could go back to the, the quote uh from page sixty-one where we are not castrated. You get fucked. Go fuck yourself. It's kind of how I yeah. translate it. What I thought here was kind of interesting, and I don't know, this may be getting a little bit outside the scope of the conversation, but to me, even beyond the castration here and this, and it's being tied to sim- the symbolic order is the notion of the debt, the symbolic debt, which Ooh. I think is quite, I don't know, that's, that's super interesting to me in the context of the whole libidinal economy model. And or think, just the infinite debt that they... Right. Or even going back to the Leotard and the quote that I read and referencing zero as well, there is this sort of accounting element to it. Virtuality of zero, I guess, facilitating exchange, etc. But I, I don't know. This is kind More of half, coded, yeah. half formulated. There's this bit in um, 
Death and Desire by uh, Brent Adkins, where he kind of speaks on the Spinozian project and that as Spinoza saw in modes and within the ethics that we see in the losing Guitari, we see desiring machines as their kind of representation of the modal. And I found that really fascinating and it kind of representing a more infinite mode in kind of an indirect way. I think that's, I think that's, that's great uh, because I do think that anti-Oedipus is definitely inspired by Deleuze's engagement with, with Spinozism, the work he, he did on him. And I think that there's a, there's a Spinoza's thread throughout Guattari as well. And one of, one of the, the main things is this question about, you know, active affects or basically this rejection and elimination of the sad passions. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that, that 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 relentless attack, I think, is part of the part of the, the foundation for anti-Oedipus, this this notion of uh, of attacking at their root, the sad passions. There's so many influences about the book because you have the very obvious inspirations from Nietzsche that we mentioned earlier. You have the general Spinozian and Kantian project, even saying that the anti-Oedipus to critique Oedipus would be the application of. Kantian critique onto uh, psychoanalysis. I don't remember what page, but yeah. And um, yeah, I, I just, the lineage of Deleuze is, and Deleuze and Qatari is really fascinating. I'm glad you brought up Kant because, you know, Freud himself basically argues that Kant inherits Oedipus when he formulates the categorical imperative. Freud intimately wants to tie the birth of the superego phylogenetically in, in, in the, the human species with, you know, with, he'll want to tie the categorical pair with the superego specifically. As yeah. it, and for him, the superego is kind of we internalize mommy, daddy, specifically yeah, daddy. It's like the symbolic and, order, right? right yeah. Yeah, that's how Lacan would say our birth into language is, severs us from the real, if you will. And and and, and our of, birth into Oedipus severs us from the desiring machines or the unconscious that being the real. It is against Lacan, but also a more advanced repetition of Lacan. Yeah, I do think they stay true to Freud and Lacan uh, in certain ways because you know I, I I tried to tell someone I forget this was a long time ago, but well even just the other day someone said that they didn't want to read Deleuze and Guattari because then they they wouldn't. Be Freudians anymore. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I saw that post. Yeah, <laughs> but, 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 yeah, uh, yes, Evelyn, I believe. Um, yeah, shout, shout out, out. <laughs> shout out, yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the the point is 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 it's not anti-Freud and it's not even anti-Lacan, even if they will. You see, it's anti edit Yeah, you see, in a thousand plateaus, they will be a little bit more brutal, but it's still. <laughs> I don't think trying to say forget Freud, forget Lacan. Uh, as you were saying, it is this updating and it is, yeah. but it's also as they kind of put it at the end of section two about, which I think is beautiful where they talk about Freud in 37 writing um, analysis interminable or terminable or interminable, right? They say that you, you shouldn't translate it as finite or infinite because it is, it's not a mathematical question. It is a practical question. And they, yeah. they describe yeah. Freud. Mm. He's at the end of his life. He knows he's going to die. He has a certain serenity in surveying the future of psychoanalysis, but he won't be there to safeguard it. And he knows something's wrong. He knows there's some little poisons that have infiltrated in. This kind of gets back to our question about when does 
like the Russian Revolution, when does psychoanalysis go bad? Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, Freud is, it's, it seems like they themselves are, well, they, they even end this, our, our section today was saying this question of schizophrenizing the cure, right? That schizophrenization must cure us of the cure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, moh. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you have anything that you want to uh, respond No, to? no, I just think it's an amazing passage as, as Oedipus and the psychoanalyst's kind of enunciation as itself a disease pretending to be with the mask of the cure and that schizoanalysis or schizophrenizing must cure the cure. Yeah, and this is very similar to Adorno's critique of Freudian psychoanalysis, which is much more blistering in Minimum Moralia, where he sees Freud basically as neuroticizing. And, and I think the Liz and Guattari would agree with that. Uh, they, their emphasis is it as negative or rejecting of it, but I think that they are, they're at least in league with Adorno on that point that Freud... And I don't know if Freud always has this tendency. I do think, I still see it more in later Freud, but at moments, you know, I don't think he's always about neuroticization is not like Freud is always promoting enjoy your symptom. We're just going to make you normal neurotic. But many times, especially in these grand maneuvers, like when he wants to make Oedipus universal, instead of seeing it as a contingent formation, I think that that's, that's part of the blindness. I mean, we said, I said earlier, a little bit part of the blindness was concerning feminine sexuality. What, what does woman want? As he like famously says, which Lacan will work through in his own way. What does the other want of me? And Gia's good on this too. But um, Coop, did you, did you have anything you, uh, you wanted to uh, say about that? Or do you want to go on? You mentioned a l- the first part of this little quote here regarding regarding Patton and the soldiers, etc. But I think it's very interesting, like this last portion of that little section, the terms of Oedipus do not form a triangle, but exist shattered into all corners of the social field. Mm. The mother on the instructor's knees, the father next to the colonel. Group fantasy is plugged into and machined on the socius. Being fucked by the socius, wanting to be fucked by the socius, does not derive from the father and mother, even though the father and mother have their roles as subordinate agents of transmission or execution. I think generally what this passage was about was more of interpreting the, or kind of analyzing the psychoanalytic analysis of putting the mother and father into places where they should not be in putting in, well, over-specifying on the Oedipal Triangle and that the Oedipus is scattered. It is not everywhere, but in the socius, it is found there, not in a specific formation. And what they specifically will constantly hammer Freud about is this reduction of, of the group to the, to the individual, right? This insistence on privatization of, of my little fantasy, my little desire. Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, in A Thousand Plateaus, they talk about a state or whatnot can be measured. Basically, it's power. They, they measure it in terms of zones of power. And it's precisely when desire leaks from, you know, it's, it's precisely to dam up and prevent desire from leaking. And when it leaks, that's, that's when you start to see, well, one way we could say it is we start to see the death drive implemented collectively, right, in, in these institutions. Oh, a nice connection, yeah. I would say that that's, this is where they bring up uh, subject groups and subjugated groups really quickly. And what is it? Page 64 yeah, as well. Yeah. But there's a whole revolution. Someone has to play the revolutionary 
Is that hmm. what you're referring to as well? They may bring that up, but but their their point is they because they're they're very cautionary, even more so in a thousand plateaus. But they always have these cautions where it's not enough to say, "Well, I've got my subject group, we're good." Those groups are always in peril of slipping back into subjugated groups, slipping back into pseudo individuality, as they call it, and and that's I think why Guattari thinks you need consistently, periodically, intermittently these these injections, these doses of death drive in, in institutions, or else they ossify and solidify. I mean, this is part of his, this is part of his rejection of the, the French Communist Party. Yeah. Right. Which makes sense too. I think and it's a critique of liberalism too, right? Because that's one of the big things of liberalism is like these, insti- these uh, institutions that are these allegedly neutral institutions. Right. But Ooh. obviously that's not the case. They do take on their own, <laughs> They have their own sort of life drive, right? Because yes. life life drive is tied to what it's tied to complexity and like organization, right? It's that move. Yeah, Am to I join right? to join bigger groups. I mean, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, the and this is why in Plato, I, specifically the Symposium, which Freud likes to cite, there Pausanias's speech. He says that under tyrants, there's this rule instituted that groups of three or more are outlawed. Precisely, the tyrant wants to prevent friendship, prevent love arrows from conjugating groups precisely because he's, he knows how fragile his, his power is, right? He, mm-hmm. he, has to, he has to bring out the whip, bring out the rod and, and use force visibly at every moment. And that's why he lives without friends and is the most miserable, et cetera. Yeah, no, no, that's fascinating. I do think they make a good point. I think Leotard says it too, but they make this interesting point about analysis in terms of its endpoint, whether it has an endpoint. And Freud being frustrated and seeing why does it seem to take so long or why does it seem that the cure takes longer and longer? You know, his whole point about his apology for the Wolfman and it taking years and it being such a long case history to even write is that maybe all of this work can streamline future cures. And yet we see at the end of his life, he is, um, he is not necessarily so optimistic. I mean, Freud is, as he gets older, you see the pessimism coming up more uh, strongly, especially like civilization's discontents. They talk about the, the, the exchange of flows of speech and money, right? The, the flows of money and the flows of speech and their exchange and how you know, I, I think that for Deleuze and Guattari, they see that there is something cynical about the analyst making these excuses and, and, and underhanded excuses for the role of money in analysis. Even Freud himself says it like that, that he claims that the, the cases done for free always seem to, the transference doesn't work quite the same as when the the sessions are being paid for. And one of his things is it's almost as though the patient doesn't take it seriously. Right. Or something like that. And yeah, there uh-huh. has to be a libidinal there has to be a libidinal investment in the mm. in the interaction or the something. So the how do we build this kind of gizzo analytic clinic with regards to money and value? That's kind of the question. Right. Or an interesting question that I think should be faced in like the Lewis studies. I agree. And I'm not sure, you know, I'd be fascinated to know, I'm trying to remember in this text, but I'm trying to also think of other Guattari texts, if he, 
they discuss the role of money in analysis. I mean, they, they blister it here in this little section, but I'm trying to think of other parts and it would be fascinating to, because I mean, if you think about uh, Guattari working at Le, Le Board, these are patients far outside of Freud's register. These are, these yeah. are patients Freud would not be right. working with. Coop and I discussed whether Freud would have taken Schreber as a patient at the time. Schreber himself in, at first, uh, decided I need to, I need to institutionalize myself. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm having trouble, uh, but then he couldn't get free. Now Laborde was definitely different, but there, there does seem to be this question. I mean, like in the biography, in the cross biography, they, the cross lives biography, the Guattari was always scheming and struggling to, to keep not just Laborde particularly, but some of the ancillary group sessions functioning because of money. So in that sense, I, I we know that he had to have been concerned with at least the funding of mm-hmm. treating these patients, but, but they were themselves paying, right, for, uh, for treatment. And so that would be completely different. And that's probably why Guattari can unhypocritically criticize the role of money in analysis. And I would be curious if he ever had private practice where he, where he profited off of, uh, I don't know off the top of my head, it, it, it might be in the DOS biography. Hey, if there's anyone that that'll know, it's you. I didn't finish it. It is a, it is a tome, um, but it's it's fun to, to read through. I mean, it's fun. Um, you know, I think I don't know if you remember, but you know, the the story, the stuff about Lacan in there is always juicy. There's kind of some juicy gossip about um, you know Guattari being pressured by Lacan to like talk about anti Oedipus, and he's like, nah, yeah, I don't trust you. Or you know, Lacan meeting Deleuze for dinner and getting totally fucking wasted. <laughs> And then going back to Deleuze's place, there was kind of a little after party and Lacan just being completely obnoxious um, <laughs> and Deleuze being, you know, patient like a saint or something. <laughs> but What an inverse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. Uh, well, I mean, I think I would react the same way. Someone with Lacan's stature as, as a kind of celebrity, by that point, at least, you would just have to kind of put up with the dirty old man being, <laughs> being drunk. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's just me. I, I'm kind of a little bit, I feel a little bit of Deleuze's vibe, you know, with his, <laughs> it's almost to the point of cloying, you know, my, I, I vibe with the affirmationism, right? I vibe with that almost naivete, naive Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> naive Tete. Yeah, naive Tete. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to sum up what we just talked about with the role of money. Uh, just they, their problem is this complicity. And I think that in this whole chapter, they don't necessarily blame Freud for it, but they see the aftermath of Freud, that there is this complicity specifically with the psychoanalysts have become the new priests, right? You go to them. You confess, confess your, your sins. sins. Yeah. So there's this complicity with power too. And you see that in the, the footnote we started off with, with you know, bringing out the tape recorder is going to get you booted out by the police. It is the one who does not code versus the one who does code, kind of the breaking of normative. Well, I mentioned this before, but yeah. No, it's good to, it's good to reiterate. I wanted to get into maybe this discussion here about desiring production and social production, the confrontation between those two forms of production, between symptomological and collective formations given their identical nature and their differing regimes. And on the other hand, the repression of the social machine that the social machine exercises 
on desiring machines and the relationship of psychic repression with social repression. And it should be noted that there's two words in French for repression, right? There's refoulement, which is the psychic, which is specifically psychoanalytic. And then they have repression. They have the social repression being repression outside of the analytic sense, but, you know, being oppression or, or, or whatnot. Well, I think we have to take them hand in hand generally. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for Deleuze and Guattari, there's a sense in which Freud privileges psychic repression, you know, which is part and parcel with his, uh, his, his zooming in on the individual and taking them as kind of a, a piece from the whole or extracted from the whole. And, and so it is the kind of, you could say it's a chicken or the egg thing where what, what, which came first psychic or social repression. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> That's exactly what I was going to ask. No, go like, ahead. What go the ahead. fuck? What's the difference, right? Aren't they, I mean, isn't that kind of what Guattari and Deleuze are getting at is that there's d- kind of this uh, eroding that distinction between them or right. Wouldn't they have a common or the, the way that death drive and life drive sort of prop one another up, right? Wouldn't this have some sort of co-constitutive element to it as far as social and, and what is it? Social machine, the repression of social machines, et cetera. And let's see, what was the other? Desiring production. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Damien, you brought up Rousseau earlier as one of the first authors you read in this, in the philosophical realm. And, you know, for Rousseau, there is a moment at which consciousness just erupts. And for him, it's, there are elements that are similar to the Garden of Eden, you know, the, the tree of the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil uh, stuff. But it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's interesting for him. It, it's uh, the moment of recognition consciousness generates out of a social gathering. You know, you're around the fire, you're singing around the fire and everyone's collectively enjoying each other. Uh, and there's this moment where, Suddenly distinctions and ranks are just just like happen all at once. Like they'd all they, yeah. like they'd always been there. There's this moment of recognition where someone sings better, someone has more prestige, blah, blah, blah. And more of a, a rise of Babylon almost. Yes, right. And and so that's where inequality just with consciousness immediately institutes itself as though it had always already been there. And I think that um that for him would mean that social repression or, or sociality is itself primordial and primary. Yeah, and, and in Deleuze, yeah. we, we kind of see that too. I remember in What is Grounding, we kind of have some of that. I really love that lecture course. It's one of my favorite bits of Deleuze with the infinite questions and such. And it's just a general analysis of the first socialization, if you will. That's interesting. I, I'll have to look at that. I, I, I haven't gotten around to it. I oh, I definitely it's... recommend it. Yeah, uh, I would say, Coop, and I'll, I'll throw this back to you. You know, I think that for the losing watchery, it's not necessarily a point of of asking which is first. It's a point of the the complicity with which psychoanalysis wells them together. And also the, the, the way in which the social is reduced to the psychic. Right, as though we could focus on psychic repression specifically. I mean, consider the Wolfman, right? Like how important it was. And Damien, you you may have posted about this like a week ago or so, but the the, the Nazis invading Austria, he had just lost his wife, and he's yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's barely even aware that this all this is going on. You know, his, his losing his fortune in the after the Russian Revolution, becoming destitute. 
you know, all this stuff is kind of ancillary to Freud's investigation of Wolfman's, what makes him tick. Um, and I think that he does this too with Schreber, right? He, he completely eliminates the social, there's an obsessional social core to, to Schreber. Absolutely. Um, I know there's stuff that's been written about, you know, Schreber's proto-Nazism, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can read it that way, but his delusions are animated, as I said, by, by races and tribes. And he has this fantasy of repopulating the earth with little Schrabers. I mean, like that, all of that is reduced to the sexual and all of that is, yeah. It, yeah. it reminds me of this conversation I had with a psychotic friend of mine. I, I, I'm not going to dox them or tell of the conversation, but yeah, it definitely reminds me of that. Well, can you give a general kind of frame or? or- um, yeah, yeah, just of repopulating um the earth with themselves or the object of love wow yeah so very very strayberian in a strict yeah sense. very strayberian coop do you, do you want to end with a with a banger is there is there i see you searching for uh for for either a quote or a passage yeah i'm looking for something that kind of pops out here i think this quote was one of the more interesting Ooh. ones that i pulled Everything would be fine if the economic problem of desire were merely quantitative. It would be a matter of reinforcing the ego against the drives, the celebrated strong, mature ego, the contract, the pact between the analysis, analyst rather, and an ego that is normal in spite of everything, except that there are qualitative factors in the desiring economy that indeed present an obstacle to treatment, and Freud reproaches himself for not have taken them sufficiently into account. This is great. And this, this ties back to what we discussed earlier about the, the viscous and fluid libido and, and things sticking or not sticking, things slipping in, uh, in the transference. But Damien, if you had anything that you wanted to add in, I, I don't want to talk too much. Um, no, no, I got to most of my stuff. There's some bits that I didn't get to, but it's fine. I guess that, the, you know, what's interesting, as I said earlier, you know, this is what Anna Freud will take up and specifically at least for a while the americans will will focus on which is kind of mistaking the problems of analysis as merely one of reinforcing the ego merely of making it strong and you know lacan himself in the 50s when he's starting his seminars he he discusses some of this and rejects it because i think for him that's to totally simplify the the problem so uh, again a kind of the literary narrative of the text so you have lucifer saying that schizophrenic as being male but also possibly being female but not both at the same time dead or alive parent or child but not both at the same time it dividing in itself and so on so on and then later he says a kind of not against that but as that that they are both at the same time And I think it's interesting because you obviously have the male and female as kind of flowing into queer theory, and you definitely have that connection. And then the dead or alive one, I think you have a lot of areas in philosophy there. You have Derrida in Spectres of Marx kind of analyzing that state, and obviously Guyatat in Coma, which is a beautiful, amazing analysis of that state that relates to the more psychoanalytic machine, too. And, um, And then finally, you have the parent or child, which is obviously, as we were speaking of the Oedipal complex and how the uh, schizophrenic cannot be Oedipalized due to it being both the parent and the child. 
You see those divisions in Schraber, right? The, his becoming woman. Also his idea that he's the only human left, that all the other humans are actually little mannequins. They're fleetingly improvised men. So every humanity has been wiped out. And, uh, you know, Lacan himself will talk about this division in the psychosis seminar, right, that we did with Elliot Coop, where it's this dead or alive, this kind of Schrodinger's cat phenomenon. And there is actually a medical condition. I forget the name. It's fascinating. There's a medical condition where, and I, I, I researched this for the Schraber thing, because Schraber, Schraber ideates, he, he experiences his organs dissolving like his larynx and his yeah. stomach dissolving but the rays the sunbeams miraculous they, they miraculously like regenerate him at the same time but there is this condition i fucking wish i knew the name of it but there's a there's a condition where individuals believe they are dead they are already dead huh. uh, interesting I, and it, it, I believe but you could um go ahead you could say that if we see schraber through Bataille, we could see um, almost um, the anus as a healing factor to Schreber. Definitely. The anus is the cathected organ because it, his delusions start with the becoming woman. shouldn't even say delusions, except in the, the strong sense that Deleuze and Guattari talk about it, but the, the delirium or the, the becoming woman starts with the thought, what would it be like to be fucked as a woman, to, to fuck as a woman? That's Schraber has the spontaneous thought and it sends him on this, this becoming. What I was going to say was that wasn't it Freud that says that the best defense against illness is or warding off illness is the development of the strong ego. Would I feel like that might've been in Schraber or Ratman. The question, gosh, fending off illnesses. I mean, uh, it depends. I mean, I, I guess what, what kind of, the, the, one of the ways that like he says anxiety is this kind of like, well, like with the, with the war traumas and beyond the pleasure principle, right. Where he's talking about the yeah, soldier, too, yeah. the soldier, the soldier being wounded and soldiers being wounded in battle seemingly tend to do better with post-traumatic stress disorder or, you know, with, with the anxiety, with the, with the anxiety dreams and such, because the body has to cathect its energy biologically into the affected organ and therefore sort of is not as strongly cathecting, investing the, the psychical part that, that will be traumatized. So there's a, there's a counterintuitive part to that. But yeah, for Freud, anxiety is this signal kind of retroactively that prepares us and helps us to master the trauma. So I don't, that's obviously not the same thing as what you were saying. I, I, I don't know if Freud himself, I guess I don't know, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a place or two where he, was, he says that because obviously Anna Freud, you know, I know she's different, but she, she gets it from somewhere where she yeah. thinks that it's about strengthening the ego. Yeah, I can't remember. It, it was either Schraber, could have been beyond the pleasure principle or Ratman that I feel like he says it, but. I mean, the problem, the problem with just strengthening the ego and focusing on that is that it does truly lead us down the path of normal neurotic, right? It does truly lead us to, I mean, we, you can just see this in limit states and like, uh, you know, taking psychedelics where we talk about ego death. Yeah. And, and that actually mm -hmm. being a, well, for example, I mean, we know that experimentally, at least LSD, mescaline and specifically MDA, Molly, right? MDMA, there, yeah. 
they are used, they can be used experimentally to treat certain addictions like alcoholism. You know, if you've ever done shrooms or acid, the last thing you want to do is drink fucking whiskey while you're on it. That's, those two don't really vibe together. And there's something about like sort of restarting the, the neural pathways, whatever you want to metaphor you want to use. But uh, I guess that would be the thing where then it indicates if by extension that a strong ego is particularly prone to certain addictions and therefore to certain obsessional phenomenon and uh, that can be disruptive. To return to Death and Desire, which is just one of the books I used to study for this, he says something as the specificity of the ego as formed by the repression of desiring production by the Oedipal sexuality. And I think that if we are to analyze the general form of the ego in regards to desiring production, that's an interesting way to look at it, especially with regards to psychedelics and the things you were talking about. I think that's a great point, you know, because because when they talk about group fantasy, they specifically say that it's not the, the it's not little egos that form the collective. It's, uh, you know, it's the drives. I think this is page 60 where they say they talk about the tyrannical complete object. And they say this is perhaps no longer the case when the partial object is posited for itself on the body without organs with as its sole subject, not an ego, but the drive that forms the design machine along with it and enters into relationship of connection, disjunction yada yada uh which can only be defined the, the, in terms of the corresponding multiplicity whose every element can only be defined positively and i i like that deliz's notion of multiplicity which he somewhat gets from books on etc is for him positive you think about i mean they, they describe intensities on the body without organs and this gets to leotard a little bit as all positive even if we use negative numbers representationally it's still on the transcendent field of positivity, yeah. Right, yeah, it's, it's, it's all, intensities are, you don't really talk about intensities negatively, right? I mean, that's, this is, this is where like particles and waves are interesting because even if waves can interfere and collapse and, and destroy one another, you don't really think about particles that way. I mean, I, I also see it as like the conservation of, uh, of matter, right? right? Nothing's really created or, or destroyed, at least theoretically, but, but transformed. Just to get back to Coop's questions about lack that we kind of started with. There is um, a, a little bit of a bit of anti-Oedipus that upon my reread, especially with all the stuff that's been happening with my mental health recently, it hasn't been too great to give a summarization that I definitely very much related to. In the bit where it says, it is madness and its innocence that disturbs us. And I really, I felt very related to that quote because when i was having my more or less breakdowns i wasn't i i obviously as a queer person have built masks for myself to live closeted and so on and so on and so in my psychotic breakdown i as perhaps more of an internal maskless like a small child just out of the womb completely innocent and completely without protection and I felt that quote as innocence being the disturbing part as utterly fascinating and really personal. Do they say that anti Oedipus, Damien? I believe so. After the bit about schizophrenia it being universal, the artist climbs the wall to reach the land without time in school. After that part. Interesting. That, that's yeah, great, after the that's part about move. there are no contradictions but humorous. That, that's, that's, that's a great quote. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. I like what you said about the 
fresh out of the womb too, because, you know, so very important for, uh, I mean, really so very important for Freud is the notion that, that humans specifically are born too early, right? We are yeah. extremely helpless. It, 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 I mean, the helplessness of the child is fundamental to understanding why the Oedipus complex for Freud, he takes as a given, right? We, mm-hmm. we depend so much on our mother for sustenance, on our father for protection. That's why we form these identifications with them that are, that to him give the clues for our libidinal history and trajectory. Just to speak a little bit well of Freud, I know we've been, a, we've kind of been shitting on the old man today. Looks like you got yeah. something here, Coop. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have much else. Honestly, I pulled, I just had a last quote from Baudrillard. I don't know if it even rele- is relevant to the, the episode, to be honest, we, just about we, castration. We, we can try it. We can try to end with castration. I mean, that's. There's nothing behind the succession of veils. There never has been. And the impulse, which is always pressing forward in order to discover this is strictly speaking, the process of castration, not the recognition of lack, but the fascinating vertigo of this annihilating substance. The entire march of the West ending in a vertiginous compulsion for realism is affected by this myopia of castration, pretending to restore the ground of things. We unconsciously eye up the void. Instead of recognition of castration, we establish all kinds of phallic alibis. Then following a fascinating compulsion, we seek to dismiss these alibis one by one in order to uncover the truth, which is always castration but which is in the last instance always revealed to be castration denied. I'm not sure about the March of the West ending in a compulsion for realism. I mean, realism in the West obviously arises in art, especially, and in literature. Well, uh, I think it's more of a, a thirst for the real. Yeah. I think on maybe and even authenticity. I think maybe even for like hey. authenticity. Okay. Yeah, and Rather we see a lot of this in like in everywhere original. in Baudrillard. We see a lot of this in Fisher. We yeah, we see this this absolute thirst for the real everywhere. Would you say then that what we were discussing about you know desiring production, machining, desiring machines being no metaphor and producing the real directly? Yeah, uh, it was. Is this is this maybe a part of Deleuze-Guattari's realism? Yeah, yeah, that desiring production w- quenches that thirst is a possibility, and it's very interesting in regards to kind of social formation of desiring production or clinical formation as well. I think it's fascinating because using realism in, in, in more than one sense is interesting, right? Because Freud does try to strive for realisms in various points in his theories sometimes uh, to, the, to his own detriment, right, with like the seduction theory based on a certain realism of, uh, of sexual trauma at the expense of fantasy. But for Deleuze and Guattari, it's the role of representationalism in analysis that would foreclose another kind of realism that they're trying to, to produce with uh, the notion of the unconscious as a factory, for example. I wonder if the the phallic alibis, if Oedipus is, if he would consider, is considering Oedipus one of these phallic alibis that get generated. Freud himself talks about various, various prosthetics for desire, for, um, you know, these, these different substitutes that we, we kind of enhance our uh, relationship with. It's a fascinating thing. 
Yeah, for the phallic alibi. Yeah, it is. I guess that's that's the question. You know, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit with Isabel Millar, but this notion of we just think of Lacan's notion of uh, of castration, right? The the male wants to wants to kind of parade around as as the phallus without the masculine, right? Without realizing. Or, or wanting to cover it up in a way, whereas the feminine will sort of wear it as a mask or wear it right. as a, as a, you know, will be aware of the dressing up. And I, I, I think that what I immediately tried to saw this as was kind of uh, the question of drag, right? You know, dressed as a girl, the notion of drag as, oh, I mean, RuPaul herself says we're all born naked and the rest is drag. I think <laughs> that there's, there's a notion of parading the mask rather than needing it if you will does that does that come close to some of the stuff about the phallic alibi maybe that Baudrillard's uh, discussing I was just thinking more so that castration being a primary that castration being a constitutive element of the Oedipus complex writ large yes definitely I mean definitely and, for, for and in that sense yeah that being more so the relevant point here for me and kind of why I thought this was somewhat interesting to bring up it's interesting that freud we've talked about this a little bit it's interesting that freud will take castration and lacan too especially will take it as this this sort of ontogenetic given that right that yeah all go through yeah it's like this a priori sort of formulation right for lacan obviously it's 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 introduction to language for freud it's a little bit more about the identifications of the father and the mother and, and desire in that sense specifically but yeah. you know i mean the but we see in the case histories that castration is much more interesting than that, right? We see in the case histories is about usually it's a threat of castration. Right. Yeah. It's Wolfman. Of, yeah. Wolfman. The what was her name? Was it Magda? No, it's not Magda. It's something else. Well, well, there was. So what was it? Wolfman was the one that mitzerates in front of the nurse and she Nanya. threatens the castrate Nanya. Right. So she nanny. threatens castration. Yeah. She threatens castration. Yeah. There's there's always uh, just this, to concretize that. In the case histories, I think neither right. here nor there. And with Straver, the castration is is more symbolic because it's about it's later in life the failure to reproduce. Whether right, you know, and usually it's you know we could say that he takes it as a as a sign of his impotence. You're right, yeah. biologically. I so, wonder, like some of that too is bound up with that restriction prohibition on masturbation from Schreber too, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's associated. We know with the uh, you know. Um, there's, there's this whole folk tale about you're either going to go blind, right? If you masturbate too much or we'll cut off, you know, what's you've, have you both seen, um, what is it? Red dragon? Is that what's called? Yeah. Have you seen that Damien? I do not believe so. Well, the, 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 the tooth fairy played the, by, uh, Joseph fines or Ray fines, Ray fines. I think his uh, mother said she, Ralph, would, she, Ralph would always, she would always threaten castration. The grandmother. When he was a little boy. Right. Right, the grandmother would, would would threaten him with castration, and that becomes you know the current one of the kernels of his psychosis, if you want to call it that. But yeah, the the threat of castration. You know, also, you know, Freud himself will will metaphorize castration because he'll yeah. he'll see an Oedipus blinding himself at the moment of realization, his his aha moment. I kill my father and fuck my mother. He blinds himself, and so that's where. Freud too will 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 take castration that it, it could be a threat of losing the hand, losing sight, and so castration itself is a is a metaphor 
I think for Freud in, uh, you could say it's disability, you could uh, broadly, right? Um, you know, and that's why I think the alibi, but also prosthesis being central for Freud, right? I mean, like the notion of object and lack of object, it's always substitutes for Freud. Mother substitute, father substitute, right, father. Yeah. Uh, object substitutes. There's never, you never get the real thing. It's always a prosthetic. Which is kind of that metonymy, right? Maybe that's where yes. Lacan gets the whole object um, horizontal movement too. Yeah, and I think that for Deleuze and Guattari, it's not about substitutes. To really unpack this stuff, I think we'd have to go back to difference and repetition. Yeah. Damien, I, I believe you're, you're familiar with yes, that I've text, correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. would, would, would you say it's something like that? That, you know, for Deleuze, it's not when you, when you perform a differential calculation, it's not about what I think is fascinating. Like with the infinitesimal, one of the problems uh, initially is that mathematicians would be like, oh, it, it, it approaches zero, therefore we can just forget it. And, um, yeah. and therefore it can just be, be, be done away with and, and nothing. But, you know, for, for Deleuze, he wants to revisit this and say that no, the infinitesimal is. Is precisely not a lack, right? It's not lacking. It, it's it 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 has a function. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think that relates to what we he kind of put down anti Oedipus in the sense of the finite infinite and kind of the intersection between mathematical philosophy and continental philosophy, which we see later a lot with Bedou, which we see with Ricoeur, which we see with a lot of different characters. Yeah, I mean, even with Bedou, with the empty set, it's not lacking it's precisely everywhere it's in every set right it's always yeah, exactly a, yeah. you know it always is included yeah and i i more so related to like brentano and kind of his own notions of the infinite it's a nice it's a nice tasty like teaser for us in the audience to suss out later yeah i'll give you a name and you can wikipedia him <laughs> <laughs> yeah well coop any final thoughts on this uh on, on... i wanted to go back to the Tooth Fairy from Red Dragon, because I thought maybe something quasi-relevant from the movie is the way that the Tooth Fairy in his victims lodges the mirrors in their eye sockets so that right. you watch himself. Presumably, you know, there's a necrophilia element present or maybe before that, right? I, f- I forget specifically, but I believe it's necrophilia. Like, so he lodges... He kills them. He lodges the broken mirrors so he can watch himself. Yeah, I mean, you could say that's necrophilia, but at change base them. Yeah, but but at base, it's it's narcissism, right? Yeah, exactly. It goes back to the was it the who who had the sadomasochistic element to their case, right? That was well. I mean, maybe both Red, of them. <laughs> Ratman had some of it, but but specifically, Wolfman wanted. He started acting right, right. out. Yeah, he was the one that had he, the fetish about being punished. No, no, he no, wanted no, to be punished. He wanted to be punished by the father. Okay. So that's all I had. No, it's good. I mean, I think that what's really nice about what we did today is we really were able to cover in depth a lot of the material and bring in some, some other authors and, and these, these other thoughts. I thought that, uh, I thought that I just had a blast. I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that that time has has flown, Damien. Always I, does, I, always does. I really want I really want to thank you for yes. giving me another chance and coming. <laughs> on and, and, uh, hey, I hey, I get it, I get it. Chaosophy and everything. <laughs> Do you want to wrap up here? I thought it was great. I thought it was really good. Loved being on. Thank you again. This will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off for the week. 
this is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I mean is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in block work or 